Hey everybody, welcome back to Kentucky History and Haunts. I am so sorry that it's been so long since I put out an episode. This is the longest I've gone since I started the podcast without recording. Um, I started fostering a puppy and there was just no way, um, you know, that first week that I was going to get anything, any recording done. Um, we're all settled now and she's great and... Um, so that's squared away but then I got sick and I could not talk and you you can probably hear I still don't sound 100% right but I wanted to get this episode out I've had this written for a while it's an interesting story Um, so let's get right into it so we need to go back to September of 1991 to Barkley Regional Airport in Paducah Kentucky Paducah is in western Kentucky, McCracken County. I don't think I've been to Paducah, um, but it's home to the National Quilt Museum and Barkley Airport, which was originally called the Paducah-McCracken County Airport, created in 1941 by the War Department through the efforts of Senator Albin Barkley. And if that name sounds familiar, it might be because he went on to become vice president under Truman from 49 to 53. So this airport was built in 41 by the War Department as a military surplus airport that was used for B-17 crew training. And then when the war was over, the airport was deeded to Paducah and McCracken County and became available for commercial use. Pretty common story, I think. A lot of small airports across the country were built for war, um, for war, you know, for training and Um, you know, building and all sorts of stuff. So um, even Bowman Field, you know, built in 1919, Mr. Bowman was looking at these planes in World War I going, man, this is the stuff. These these airplanes are the future, right? So um, Bowman will definitely get its own episode at some point because it has such such a great history. Um, But back to this airport. The first commercial plane, a Chicago and Southern DC-3, departed the airport on April 1st, 1946. And then in 1949 is when they changed the name to the Barkley Regional Airport in honor of Senator Barkley, future Vice President Barkley, who had played an important role in getting things up and running. Now, I would imagine that what I'm going to talk about today is the craziest thing that's ever happened at this airport. But there's no mention of it on their website, and understandably so. It's probably not something I would advertise. But it is a fact that on September 30th, 1991, a very strange death occurred on the site, or rather above the site, of the Barkley Airport. Shortly after 6 p.m. that Monday, a young man approached Wes Weaver, an employee of Barkley Regional Airport. The man asked Weaver if he was a pilot or if he knew one. Weaver said no. The man said he was in a hurry. He desperately needed to get out west as soon as possible. He offered to exchange the jacket he was wearing for a flight. And so at this point, Weaver was starting to think, ah, this guy seems to be up to no good. According to Weaver, the man didn't seem, quote, crazy, but more like he was in trouble, 
running from something or someone. So Weaver asked him to leave, and he didn't immediately. The the man just hung around for a little while, and then finally he went back through the hangar and disappeared from sight. About 30 minutes later, Weaver saw the man again. This time, Weaver was in his vehicle driving near the airfield as he watched the strange young man run across a ditch, jump onto the airport fence, climb over it, and run towards a plane sitting out on the runway. Not good. So Weaver called security. Now, two other witnesses also saw the man. This was Jerry and Linda Lieb, and they were in their yard, but they had a vantage point where they were also able to watch the man sneak onto the runway. Now, from where they were standing or sitting, the man then ran around to the other side of the plane where he was out of their line of vision, okay? There was only one aircraft out on the tarmac, and this was Northwest Airlines Flight 2940 bound for Memphis. And security did not get there fast enough. At 6.49 p.m., Flight 2940 was cleared for takeoff. Linda Lieb watched the plane take off, and about a minute later, she watched something fall from it. The sun was just setting as authorities mobilized a search, looking for the man witnesses had seen roaming around the airport earlier. Roy Jones, director of Airfield Services, noticed that a section of fence had been damaged at the northern end of the airfield, and lying at the base was the body of a young man. This is an unprecedented situation for Little Barkley Airport. People don't just hang on to planes as they take off, only to let go and fall to their deaths. So poor Roy Jones and these other guys and girls standing around. I mean, I just can't imagine. Now, they couldn't find any identification on or near this guy, so nobody knows who he is. He's wearing the bomber jacket, okay, the one he was willing to exchange for a flight somewhere. He's wearing a nice pair of running shoes. He's also wearing two pairs of jeans. He's dressed for the cold. Um, He also had on a blue knit jogging jacket, a green sweater, and a brown shirt. So, layers on layers. He had a Sony Walkman still on his person. He also had a pair of swimming goggles in one of the jacket pockets. There was an ID tag sewn into the collar of the jacket. It was inscribed, Lieutenant L.F. Price, United States Air Force, but a check of military records could find no such person. Blood tests showed no sign of drugs or alcohol in the mystery man's system. The coroner, Jerry Beyer, who will become important later in the story, noticed the man's body was very tan with no tan lines and that his pubic hair was shaved in a particular way that made Beyer think maybe this guy was a male dancer. Um, He was very fit, tanned, and groomed, and it would have made sense because a Chippendales troupe had actually been in town recently. So that's why he was thinking it could have been that. But nothing came of that. There were no missing Chippendales dancers. 
But it does make sense that the man was very physically fit because you would have to be to do what he did. He had about 90 seconds to climb a seven and a half foot fence, run a good distance of terrain, including through a ditch system, and then run around the plane's tail system and climb up onto it. He had to have barely made it. Within seconds of him connecting with the plane, it would be barreling down the runway at 125 miles per hour, then 190 once it left the ground. It was determined that he must have stayed on the plane until it reached 3,000 feet, but there's a caveat here. In most of the other newspaper articles I read, it said the plane only reached 300 feet when he fell. There are huge discrepancies in all the reports, so just don't worry about the elevation. Just know it was too high to survive. Six weeks after the incident, a funeral was held for the mystery man at Roth Funeral Chapel, and eventually he was buried at Oak Grove Cemetery in Paducah. A headstone was made for him. It read, Unidentified, about 25 years of age, fell to his death from an airplane at Barkley Regional Airport, September 30, 1991. I think it's sweet and worth noting that several people attended the funeral services for a man none of them knew, and over the years, people continued to leave flowers at his grave. Investigators didn't have much to go on in terms of identifying the mystery jumper, so the case went cold. It went cold until 1999. An article came out in the Bowling Green Daily News on Wednesday, June 9th, and the headline read, man killed in 1991 fall from plane finally identified so almost eight years later quote cincinnati detectives made a positive identification tuesday morning after comparing the man's fingerprints with the fingerprints of 28 year old brian stanley deeker deeker had been missing since the 25th or 6th of september 1991 So how did they finally figure this out? Well, the internet. Deeker's stepmother was using the internet to go through old articles trying to find out what happened to her missing stepson all those years ago. And she happened to come across that story of the Paducah John Doe. It was a website she found that was updated with several newspaper articles that had been written on anniversaries of the man's death. And after reading through the articles, she was like, that's got to be him. Deeker's stepmom had also created a webpage for her family, and there was a page that was dedicated to Brian and his disappearance, and it included a photo of him. So she emails the Paducah son, who published some of these articles years earlier. This is the second time that she's actually tried to make this connection between her missing stepson and the mysterious plane jumper. The second time. Okay, the first time was when she saw an episode of Unsolved Mysteries three years earlier. Now, this episode actually first aired in 1992, but she didn't see it until later. It would have been um, 1996 when she saw the rerun. But she sees this repeat broadcast and she says she, quote, contacted the Paducah police, but within a couple of hours, Brian was eliminated. 
But after seeing the composite sketch on the Unsolved episode, she was sure it was him. She also said that a while after his disappearance, she'd had a vision where she saw Brian falling from a high altitude. She had this vision before she saw the episode of Unsolved Mysteries. Also during that first attempt, she asked the Cincinnati police to fax a copy of Brian's dental records to the McCracken County Police Department, but it never happened. I tried to find more details on how they eliminated Brian initially, but I couldn't find anything. So I don't know what it was that made them think it wasn't him, but they were sure. So who was Brian Stanley Deeker? He was a 28-year-old marathon runner living in Cincinnati. According to one article, he came from a, quote, loving, caring family that includes his father, stepmother Dee, the one that put two and two together, a brother, and a sister who live in southern Ohio. His biological mom lived in another state. His dad ran a family business and was a pastor of two small Methodist churches. But there's something else you should know about Brian. He had been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. He started showing signs of mental illness around the ages 15 to 17. He was diagnosed at age 22. Soon after that, he was placed in a halfway house in Cincinnati, where he did well for a while, but then was kicked out after a couple months. Getting kicked out of this halfway house gave him such intense feelings of rejection His family feared that if they tried putting him in another halfway house and he got kicked out again, it would just be a disaster for his mental health. He also struggled with taking his medication. He sometimes failed to take it regularly or at all. So he struggled with reality and delusion. He often felt like he was being followed, like people were following him. And so he had trouble holding a job. His family helped him stay in an apartment in Cincinnati, and they tried to check in with him regularly, although he had severe mood swings and was difficult to be around for long periods of time. His family gave him money for food and other basic needs. He was known to take off on spontaneous trips, okay, fairly regularly, but he would almost always make contact with his family, though once he got where he was going, and he would usually return within a couple of days. So it wasn't terribly concerning that Brian was gone, but it was concerning that they hadn't heard from him. Now, on the day Brian was last seen, his sister Pam Clark visited him at his apartment near the University of Cincinnati. And during that visit, Pam said that Brian was just very preoccupied with cleaning. He was cleaning vigorously, okay? And he was acting very agitated. And so she figured, okay, it's just not a good day for me to be here. And so she left. She went home. She talked to their dad, Gerald Deeker, and she told him, you know, Brian was not having a good day today, so Gerald figured he should go and visit Brian the following day. 
And when he did, that's when Brian was gone. And as I said, the apartment was unusually clean. And the weird thing was there was money sitting out on the table. And so Brian's dad knew at that point that something was probably really wrong. So when they didn't hear from him after a couple of days, they alerted the police. They gave the police uh, Brian's address book and they called everyone in it and no one had heard from Brian. Now, I've read several articles about this, and some of the older ones say it's unknown how Brian got to the Paducah airport from Cincinnati. The ones that came out more recently say he hitchhiked, um, or it was a combination of him literally running there and hitchhiking, um, which to me, that's erratic behavior. Um, And hitchhiking in the 90s, I don't think it was really a thing anymore. Like, I think hitchhiking was sketchy by the 90s. So that's a little unusual, too. But that's how they think he got there. Because there are no other records that they could find of him buying bus tickets or renting a car or anything like that. His family found some documents in his apartment indicating that he was wanting to go out west to go mountain climbing. Also still in the apartment, they found his ID and they found a handwritten last will and testament dated the day he disappeared, which as a family member would just make your heart sink, right? So I want to kind of go back to Dee, his stepmother, reaching out to the Paducah police and how it got solved from there. Um, Because remember, she got dismissed the first time. So... Dee reached out to the writer of one of these articles, and then he called her back, and they talked, and the the journalist and Dee are comparing notes and comparing photos, and they're both thinking, this has to be him. I mean, the police said it's not, but it just has to be, and no other family in all these years has come forward claiming him. It, it's just, it doesn't make sense. So they're totally in agreement, but how can they prove it? So they relay their compared notes to the coroner, Jerry Byer. And he goes back to the police and is like, look, we need to take another look at this. And then Dee remembers that Brian was once arrested for petty theft. So Byer tells the police in Cincinnati they've got to find this guy's fingerprints, which should be on record, right, from when he was booked. But they can't find them. They can't find his fingerprints. And while all of this is going on, Dee and Bill Bartleman, the journalist, the Paducah Sun writer, they start sending more photos back and forth and are just becoming more and more certain it's a match. And then it was actually Brian's sister who realized the prints were at a county jail outside of Cincinnati. So finally, they located his fingerprints. So then Bayer faxes over John Doe's fingerprints to a Cincinnati detective. And within two hours, they have a positive match. I wanted to just spend a minute more talking about coroner Bayer here. Um, I think he and... 
uh, Brian's stepmom were really kind of the heroes of this story. This case drove Coroner Byer crazy. He visited the gravesite all the time. He said in a 1994 interview, quote, Every day I open the file drawer of investigative reports. He's there. He's there where I can get ready to access him. But he has not been put away in a file cabinet to never be checked again. He went so far as to, I just think this is, this is amazing. Whenever Byer went on vacation, he would be sure to pack a stack of flyers he had put together with John Doe's face and details about the case to pass out to the local police departments of all the places he was visiting. And Byer's continued efforts to shed light on this case is what led to the connection being made. He knew that if he took a wreath out on each anniversary of John Doe's death to the gravesite, there would be a news article written about it. Some journalists would come out and cover the story and put it back out there in rotation. And it was one of these articles written by Bill Bartleman that re-caught the attention of D. Deeker. As soon as they made the identification, Coroner Byer brought a marker out to the cemetery to say, quote, Hey, Brian, we now know who you are, and this is my way of saying I'm thinking of you. Brian's family decided that since the city of Paducah had been so kind and welcoming when Brian was just a John Doe, giving him a funeral, taking care of his gravesite, that they wanted to leave the body where it was. They added an updated monument in addition to the original, finally giving the John Doe his name back. From then on, there would be closure for Brian Deeker, his family, and the city of Paducah. I'll post photos to go along with this episode on the website, kyhistoryhaunts.com, and on social media. You can find the Instagram at twi- and Twitter at kyhistoryhaunts, and you can search on Facebook, Kentucky History and Haunts. If you have a topic suggestion for a future episode, you can send me an email, kyhistoryhaunts at gmail.com. Also, I asked people in one of the Kentucky Facebook groups to send me in their paranormal stories or any sort of mysterious story relating to Kentucky. It could be true crime. It could be just anything. So I have a couple of those that I'm, I'm getting ready to share with you guys soon. But if you all have a story that you'd like me to share, you can send in a voice message or you can type it out and I'll read it. Um, and again, the email is kyhistoryhaunts at gmail.com. Thank you guys so much for listening. Share these episodes on social media. Um, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.